This episode is brought to you by my patrons. My dear patrons, thank you so much for supporting the podcast. If you have been loving the show and would like to help out, the best way to do that is by signing up for Patreon. You can sign up for just $5 per month. That'll get you access to bonus episodes called follow-ups. I've published more than two dozen of those so far. There's some really good episodes. I'll let you know who's coming up on the show so you can submit questions for guests. And, and this is new, you'll also get access to ad-free episodes. I'm gonna start doing ads on the show here pretty soon. I've got some companies I've been talking with who make products that I love that I'm excited to share with you guys. So I'm gonna start doing ads on the show, but for patrons, for people who are supporting the show financially, I wanna make sure that you keep getting ad-free episodes. When you sign up, you'll get a link to a custom feed that you can plug into Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc., to bring up the Patreon version of the show that will have all of the follow-ups and ad-free episodes all in one spot. So if you want to check that out, head over to patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing. There's a link right there in your podcast app, and you can cancel anytime, no questions asked. And thank you to all of you who support the show. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt, and my guest today is Tyler Algio. This was a really interesting and different episode. Tyler is a Canadian, but moved to Malawi with his wife a few years ago. Malawi is a country in Eastern Africa, and Tyler, along with some of his friends and companions, built a climbing gym in Malawi called Climb Malawi with the mission of creating the equal opportunity for everyone in his community to discover climbing and participate in climbing regardless of socioeconomic status. And that's the bulk of what we talked about in this conversation. I thought this conversation got especially interesting about 15 minutes in. It took us a little while to warm up, just hearing a little bit of Tyler's backstory. But to me, this conversation was a fascinating glimpse into another world that I've never been to. Tyler gave beautiful descriptions of Malawi, the climate, the location, the people, and how Climb Malawi came to be. Tyler and his wife also adopted two baby boys from Malawi while they were there, two young black sons. And it was fascinating to talk with him about raising his kids and how he's thinking about navigating things like mentorship and how to raise them with examples of other people that look like them and their inevitably complex identities that they're going to have as African immigrants with white parents back here in the States. Tyler and his wife have moved back to the United States at this time. So yeah, a really interesting conversation. We also talked about the Climbing Initiative, which is a really cool nonprofit that Tyler works with now. He's the director of Impact, and we got into a lot more of who they are and what they do and how you guys can help out with the Climbing Initiative and Climb Malawi if you feel moved and inspired to do so. And on a somewhat related note, before we jump into the episode, the American Safe Climbing Association is coming up on their annual fundraiser. And these guys need our support because they support us as rock climbers. If you don't know what they do, these guys are a nonprofit that focus solely on replacing anchors and making sure that climbing stays safe. 
Over 25,000 bolts have been replaced with stainless steel hardware that they have supplied. They have volunteers active in almost every state, along with Mexico and Thailand. And in the last several years, they've installed over 5,500 sets of lower offs. So these guys are helping to keep us safe, but they do need our support. If you wanna donate, I put a link right there in your podcast app and in the show notes. And you can learn more at safeclimbing.org. And I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode. And without further ado, please enjoy this Glimpse into Another World with Tyler Algio. Right on. Where are you talking to me from? Are you in Cincinnati? Yeah, I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio. So the closest, uh, like the home crag is the Red River Gorge, uh, about two hours south in Kentucky. And uh, uh, my wife and I are actively working, even like (laughs) a lot of change since um, I guess we last talked, um, actively working to move to Denver in the next year or two. So uh, that's where she's got family based out there. And I grew up in Canada. I don't know if you got that part of my story, but um, I'm from Canada and I grew up in the Denver of, of uh, Canada, which is called Calgary, in the okay. Calgary, Alberta near, near Banff. Man, a place I would love to go visit. It looks breathtakingly beautiful. It looks so amazing up there. It really is. Um, and like photos can't really capture it because uh, it's, just like landscapes, you know, mm. you just got to be immersed in them. So yeah, I miss the mountains desperately and uh, um, we're, we're planning to move out west. So, but for now we're in Cincinnati, um, which is kind of where we were living right before we went to Malawi too. Mm. Awesome. Well, I had a note here. I wanted to ask you about potentially moving uh, to Denver, but let's circle back to that in a little bit. This is really fun because you and I talked some weeks ago and usually I try to talk, you know, this is a little bit of uh, how the cake is baked for people listening. I don't even know if that's an expression. Maybe I just made that up. But how the podcast is made, I usually talk with people like you, uh, you know, a couple weeks ahead of time, give it some space and then we have our conversation. And uh, we had you and I had to reschedule. So now it's like six weeks have gone by or something. It's been quite a while since we talked and it's really fun because I have all these notes and I only remember what about half of them mean. So <laughs> I'm kind of rediscovering you in this conversation, which I think will will be really fun and interesting. Um, I have a note here, and I think I'm I think I might have gotten this wrong the first time I asked you about it, but I, I have to ask about it again. Ireland, you know, so you grew up in Canada. You live in the states yeah. now. One thing that, of course, we're going to talk about is Malawi and moving there and starting climb Malawi and how all that came to be. How does Ireland fit in? And can you can you tell me about that? And can you tell me about your family's passports? Yeah, sure. My wife and I met going to university in uh, Vancouver, Canada, um, with, uh, at UBC. And um, she graduated ahead of me and applied to the Peace Corps, but then was deferred uh, and ended up applying to medical school and getting accepted into Ireland. There's a bridge program that makes it really easy for Canadians and Americans to apply to all the Irish medical schools. So she got accepted into Ireland, 
right as I was graduating, we got married and then I followed her over to Ireland about six months later once I found a, a job over there. So I actually started climbing in Ireland, but my friends um, had started to climb just before I moved in Vancouver. What is the climbing scene like in Ireland? Were you just in a gym in the city? Yeah, we were. So we were in Cork, which is the second biggest city in the Republic of Ireland after Dublin. Um, Belfast is in technically in Northern Ireland, so that's part of the UK. But um, the there was a, a fairly big, strong climbing community up in Dublin that was much smaller down in Cork. Cork is like three hundred thousand people, and there was but there was a guidebook for crags in the south. So we I started at the university climbing gym, and then. Uh, transitioned over to do more outdoor bouldering uh, because initially that's that's all we did um, was, was do the outdoor bouldering. Yeah, it was it was pretty small, pretty manageable. Um, that's how I made friends. I worked in an office that had like the boss and one other person I was hired with, and then they ended up quitting. So I wasn't uh, really meeting new people um, in the same way that you do in university in a really easy way, um, the way my wife was. And a lot of her medical school class started to come to check out the climbing wall at the like university recreational facility. Um, and so that's, that's where we started and we didn't have any ropes or gear and it's all pretty much drag climbing in Ireland. So, uh, that's, that was less accessible to us. And so we just bouldered outside and eventually we got bored of the, the roped wall or the, um, the bouldering wall, which you know, it wasn't very big and was only reset so often. We started to get on the ropes in the climbing gym, but I didn't get on a rope um, outside until I was back in Canada. Okay. Okay. Got it. What did you do for work while your wife was in medical school in Ireland? Uh, so I graduated with an engineering degree in civil environmental engineering, which is more of the water, wastewater side of things. Um, and went to work for a water technology market research consultancy. Okay. Got it. And then what was it about Malawi that fascinated you and your wife? You know, you both wanted to live there to help people. She became a doctor. Um, I can't imagine that you could do the, the work that you just described in Malawi. Did you go straight from Ireland to Malawi? How did, how did that come to be? Yeah. So after graduating from medical school, my wife applied to residency in the United States. That's a, a process where you interviewed a bunch of universities and rank them and then they rank candidates and ultimately you get matched to a program. So until you're done your residency, you're not, you know, truly a, a doctor. And she got matched to Cincinnati. So uh, that was immediately after Ireland. Um, we traveled for I don't know, like a month in Ethiopia um, and then uh, relocated to her to Cincinnati. And I went back to Vancouver to do my master's in engineering. And I used that as kind of a segue to get back to what I really wanted to do, which was um, looking at these low and middle income countries and uh, different models for delivering um, water and sanitation in those different contexts Okay. Um, through things like social enterprises. Um, so uh, my research at the, in my master's was focused on like, what are the social enterprises that are active in the water and sanitation space in low and middle income countries and kind of what's making some of them successful or some of them not successful and why. Um, we had um, actually, my wife and I met in our undergraduate degrees, um, kind of volunteering with Engineers Without Borders Canada, which is was one of the the strongest, um, most active organizations at the university level that was doing 
development work overseas. Um, it was like compared to say Doctors Without Borders, which you might think my wife would go into, like the, the student <laughs> chapters weren't very um, active okay. um, at that scale. Whereas with Engineers Without Borders, they were very active. We, um, when I was the president of the chapter, we raised $67,000, uh, hosted a local conference, um, paid for two people to go and live and work for four months overseas and supported uh, one or two long-term staff who were working overseas, like wow. at the our university level. Um, and uh, so we've kind of always had this vision of finding a place to um, live and work in, in Africa somewhere long-term. Um, it was with all our travels to different parts of the continent, we've always enjoyed um, our time there and wanted to live there. I joke that my wife actually doesn't experience homesickness. She experiences like Africa sickness. Like she's always like, I want to be over there traveling. Um, and so now we're trying to find ways to like work that into our lifestyle in a different way. Mm. But that was a big motivator for why she became a doctor was she wanted to work with the underserved communities and combine that with our um, just love of being in that part of the world. Uh, that's what kind of, cause that ambition. And then, um, there's, there's not a lot of options for how to do, how to get involved in like a long-term way. And so we ended up finding a program where she could basically be full-time, like on faculty at a teaching hospital in the U S but be based in Malawi. And okay, so it wasn't like we were like targeting Malawi, but this is kind of like, that was the best option of the positions we found available. Um, there's more out there that not all of which we felt were, um, in alignment with our values and ethics about, uh, the role of, uh, Westerners in global health. But, mm. uh, this one seems like it was going to be really good. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's what took us to Malawi. So I had two years in Vancouver of the four year residency. And then for the last two years, I was in Cincinnati, uh, with my wife. And then when she wrapped up her residency, we headed to Malawi and we're there for about two years, adopted our two boys. And, um, within, I think a month or like a month and a half of getting a lot of the, all the paperwork done on, um, that adoption and their passports and everything COVID hit. And, oh, wow. um, we ended up back here. Like we got their passports in February and we flew back in, in March because and, of COVID. Yep. Yeah, okay. we knew that um, due to just the vagaries of the global health kind of work landscape, that this wasn't going to be a 10 plus year um, life in Malawi. Uh, it was looking like we were going to have to move back um, unless, you know, I was looking at different jobs, but it was difficult to find one that, that could truly support the whole family. There's, this, you know, interesting dynamics there. Like I was looking at a really, I was interviewing for a really great position in the uh, water sanitation sector in a role that, um, I thought I'd be really good. And they actually tried to recruit one of my colleagues who had been living in Malawi for 10 years and they thought I'd be much better at the job. Um, but they were offering $15,000 a year, um, for the salary for the country director for the program, uh, which I couldn't, um, kind of maintain our family's, uh, life there for. Yeah. Um, so it was clear that they were trying to hire, a local person to take that on. And it's just kind of highlights that really strange dynamic that like two people who could have the exact same qualifications would have very different salary expectations. And that would be like 
you know, people who get hardship pay to work in some of these NGOs over in Malawi um, or to work at the embassy or USAID, you know, they're making like big consultant fees, like, you know, seventy, hundred thousand dollars plus a year, plus a lot of perks, um, you know, housing covered, a uh, vehicle and everything. And, uh, you know, then somebody who's local with the exact same qualifications is, is making $15,000. Wow. And that's somehow normal and like acceptable, which it shouldn't be. Right. Man, so much to get into there. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Hardship yeah. pay. I've never heard of that. That's so, yeah. yeah. So some of those things are considered, yeah, hardship posts. Like if you're at USAID and, and um, or some of these NGOs, then maybe they've got, you know, places that are cushier gigs essentially then you don't get that but you mm. get, yeah it's it's considered a hardship post so you get like additional um say like uk government diffid um their their kind of foreign development organization um yeah so ship a container over with all your stuff you get a you have a house you get a, a vehicle you know it's it's like can be a really extremely comfortable lifestyle which we have a lot of ethical questions about so right it's a, one of many can of worms uh, <laughs> about uh, our experience yeah well i want to back up a step i want to add a little bit more color for people more of a description of malawi because you know when i talked to you for the first time and i'm a, slightly ashamed to admit this but i had to look it up on a map you know i was like i know it's in africa somewhere i don't really know where uh, it turns out for people listening, Malawi is Eastern, kind of Central Eastern Africa. It's not quite the closest, but it's one of the closest countries to the island of Madagascar. It's kind of right one country in from the coast of Africa, the East Coast. Um, and it's it's in the lush kind of central part of Africa. It looks very green. It looks like a rainforest climate maybe, um, but I'd love to to hear you describe first just the physical environment, um, what Malawi is like, what the landscape and climate are like, and then talking about these very different lifestyles that a Westerner can go and experience in an African country like this, like you're just describing. What was your lifestyle like? Were you living in a house? Um, yeah, I'd love to just hear you fill in a lot of that color for us. Yeah, absolutely. It is, like I say, in the southeastern part of the country. So um, the neighboring, or the continent, um, the neighboring countries are Mozambique, Zambia, and, and Tanzania. It's, um, it can be pretty lush. Uh, the, it's unlike here where you got summer, you know, spring, uh, fall, winter. You, in, in Malawi, you have um, essentially the, the dry season and the wet season, mm. the rainy season. Um, so in the rainy season, especially near the end of the rainy season, um, it, is, it is very lush, it's super green. But then like a couple months into the dry season and a couple months with no rain, and all the grass has turned brown. Mm. So that's kind of the, the cycles. And you get this period at the end of the dry season where it's still hot and dry, but uh, the rains are coming and it gets really humid. Um, okay. So uh, awesome for climbing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the only time of year when it's um, like not great for climbing because the rains don't, when it rains, it's not like it rains all day long. So I, I've, I've done plenty of climbing in the rainy season where you're driving through like heavy rain 
and then you get to the boulder fields and you're on i'm pretty sure granite boulders um it's, it was hard to kind of understand the geology um there you know it's dried out really fast mm. um just due to the sun and the the wind so um you're, you're able to climb there isn't a ton of um cracks because it's equatorial africa so there's not the freeze thaw cycle that's really conducive to ah, a lot of cracking right um so there there are cracks um and from a climbing perspective there's there's a guidebook from the early 1980s that somebody found in the chairperson of the mountain club of malawi's attic that they kind of retyped up and um since then British, uh, a British climber who is uh, living in the country for a while, he's gone around and tried to repeat a lot of those and update the photos and update the topos and, and provide additional information and published a guidebook on the climbing. But as far back as the as the 80s, um, there's been a lot of uh, climbing on those cracks. From what I understand, very bold, terrifying climbing um, using kind of handmade uh, bolts in <laughs> spots where you didn't have the cracks. Um, wow. So not super accessible to beginners, which was what uh, we were about in Malawi. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's the topography is really varied in Malawi. You're at the southern end of the Rift Valley, the Great Rift Valley that goes through um, Eastern Africa. So we got one of the Great Lakes, um, which is Lake Malawi, which has a lot of unique um, species in it. Um, and we were like a three, four hour drive from that. Um, and so you're in the central region where we were, it's pretty, pretty flat for the most part. And then you would drive and have this, um, hit this like rise of mountains that was the edge of the Rift Valley. And then you would like just really windy roads, just gorgeous like vistas as you drive down into the Rift Valley um, and then drive along that, that valley floor to, um, to go to the lake. In the um, north, there you're kind of I think a bit more mountainous, and so I think more of the the dramatic topography is caused by that like Rift Valley action. Um, and then further south in the country, you get the big granite domes. The the Mulanji Massif is uh, the you know not the highest peak, but uh, one of the the peaks, um, Chambe. It's it's west face is um, twice as tall as half dome. Um, wow. so you can, you basically climb up half dome and then there's a big forested kind of ledge and then you can climb another half dome. Um, wow. So 4,000 feet total, something like that. Yeah. So there's, um, and there's routes that, that go up that we were based in Lalongwe, which is the capital in the central region. And then, uh, near Malangi is Blantyre, which is the, um, other big city, um, and then there's another regional center up in the north called Mizuzu. Uh, Blantyre and Lolongwe are both a million people, and there's 90 million oh. people in Malawi. So okay. there's there's a lot of people um, for a very small country. Um, from what I understand, it had a lot of influx of people over the years because um, uh, Malawi is a country that's it's usually ranked around the fifth poorest in the world. It, is uh it does not have um much of a basis for economy other than agriculture so most of those 19 million people are subsistence farmers they're just farming to feed their families for the mm -hmm. most part um and in nearby zambia and zimbabwe you have a lot more mining going on and so um early on as uh during colonial times when these countries were i'm um, talking about independence there was actually a movement to create a federation that included 
Zambia, which was formerly Northern Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, which is formerly Southern Rhodesia and Nyasaland, which is now Malawi into like one country. But the leaders in Malawi kind of fought against that because they had seen how, how poorly people were treated in the, the colonies that had a lot of mining mm. um, going on. Um, so I think that's part of what to do with uh, how Malawi ended up with this like very large population in a very small country, like even compared to, to Zambia, um, which is where I lived for four months when I was working with Engineers Without Borders. Um, the, the population is way denser in Malawi. Mm. And where did you live? Were you in a city or a village? Um, can you describe the infrastructure and and what the actual physical day-to-day life looked like a little bit? Yeah, we were in Lilongwe, which is the capital, a million people. Um, and in a lot of ways, it, life was pretty uh, normal. Uh, we had an international airport. There was restaurants, grocery stores. You know, we we had a car um and you know drive to the grocery store get groceries go home watch tv make dinner um so in a lot of ways it is is pretty normal i think it's really easy for people when talking about other countries to either overly romanticize the uh exoticness of those other countries and cultures or to catastrophize the hardship and poverty Mm. um but in a lot of ways you know we we kind of went about our lives in a, a pretty um uh, normal fashion. And then in other ways, you know, things are all a bit different and a bit more challenging. So for example, we used two different networks for internet, one for our phones and one for our computers, because, um, periodically one of them wouldn't be working. Sometimes both wouldn't be working, but usually one of them would be working. Um, the country relies exclusively on hydropower for the most part. So, you know, I mentioned there's a dry season at the end of the dry season, all the reservoirs are really low. And so you can have, um, you, you do have scheduled kind of rolling blackout periods where there's huh. going to be no power. So a lot of the homes might have, um, uh, what they call inverters, which I feel like is the wrong term, but that's what they're called. Um, but it is basically a large battery for your house, um, that might run the lights in the fridge in one plug or something like that. Um, or some people have generators. Um, and, um, yeah, we had, you know, city water, um, city plumbing, although a lot of the places in the city have use um, septic tanks and um, we're driving the left side of the road. You know, it's life was, you know, pretty normal. I think um, it felt normal to us. You know, it was it was our routine. My wife would go to work um, at the hospital each day. I was working remotely in Malawi for two previous clients kind of consulting and then also looking to consult in the um, local Malawi uh, water and sanitation and hygiene, which we call wash sector. And uh, yeah, I was working at home. Uh, We had a a housekeeper. um, So that was kind of a weird thing to get used to uh, having Hmm. somebody around your house all the time. Um, Is that just a cultural norm there? Yeah, it it very much is. Um, Some a lot of people have a housekeeper come um, periodically uh, or every day. And uh, sometimes people also have cooks come in and, and do kind of other like low skilled labor labor uh, is, is essentially what it comes down to. We, when we moved in the previous tenant highly recommended um, jobs are hard to get. So um, often like these uh, people become kind of, 
friends and family. Mm-hmm. So you, when you, if you leave the country, um, which is, a, I think, a distinct characteristic of life in Malawi too, for um, people who are from other countries is, is people are often there for a couple of years. So um, people are, new people are always coming and, and friends are always leaving. That's kind of on a constant basis, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is really interesting for your sense of community. And so, you know, you try to find new jobs for uh, the staff that you really like. And so we were recommended this uh, a housekeeper and we said, okay, like come a couple days a week. And then eventually her husband um, lost his job and went to South Africa uh, to try to find work. And um, our housekeeper, uh, Ruth, was trying to support her four kids and send them to school with, you know, working a couple of days a week at, at our um, house and asked us to help her find more work. And we ended up hiring her to, to work five days a week and gave her a raise. Um, but we were still probably paying like a hundred dollars a month, which is considered like too much. Um, wow. and, uh, we would have gotten like grief from Malawian colleagues and friends if they had known mm. because, um, it creates this sort of upside down economy where people are like, they'd rather get hired to work in a, a foreigner's house cleaning than like go to university. Because, uh, like, wow. Yeah. You don't have the opportunities, you know, some, some of the, like we were looking at how, like how much does it work pay to work in the commercial sector, say in a hotel or a restaurant, and they may be making $200 a month in that side of things. So the best jobs are really NGO jobs working for foreign NGOs in Malawi. Um, Cause it's so dependent on, foreign aid work. So, you know, it's, you have this tension of you, you want to pay people a living wage and a good wage uh, and not like pay them these awful rates. But at the same time, like you're, you're being told by the local Malawian population to also like to not pay as that much. So mm. it's, it's one of the many cans of worms uh, of those like weird economics. Um, the cost of living obviously is very different. Um, so that's worth keeping in mind, but, um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for adding that, uh, that context and that nuance there. It's so, yeah, we, as Westerners, we do tend to think we can just roll in and give people money and that'll fix things. But, um, we don't think about the consequences and the other problems that that causes. Yeah. It's, it's very easy to go in with good intention. I mean, the whole development sector or any of that work in, low and middle income countries is uh, replete with examples of good intentions gone awry, like mm. donating clothing and sending all those, uh, all this donated secondhand clothing overseas. You, you think this is great. People are getting clothing for free or cheap, but it, it really sucks for the guy who's trying to sell clothing locally. Uh, huh. You know, right. he's now being undercut <laughs> wow. by this, this free clothes that are flooding the market. So yeah, it's, uh, it's obviously a very complicated nuanced thing. Um, you know, there's other examples of just like things that people have no control over. Like you can grow a cash crop, like paprika. I think in Zambia, that was for a while, people were encouraged to grow paprika to sell as a cash crop. Um, but there's a lot of mining in, in Zambia and copper. And, um, as the commodity market changed, the value of the Zambian currency changed. And so the, uh, it basically, because of what was happening in copper, the Zambian currency changed and that made 
it really not very competitive to sell the paprika anymore. So that cash crop, which you can't eat because it's a cash crop, is now like not competitive on the market anymore. Wow. Your community is left stranded. So when I first moved to and was living in Zambia, I had a really hard time with the the resistance to change. Like people were living impoverished lives, but they weren't didn't seem really excited to try new things and you know this was my like super naive um you know 20 something self um not understanding that you know what what they were doing has been has worked for years or generations to keep their families alive and an experiment might cause people to not be able to feed their families and they have you know they've people have seen for years that these NGO programs come and go and then mm. like they're just left with cleaning up the mess of if it worked or not. Like there's no guarantee that they're going to be there next year. Sure. Um, as, as global priorities shift, you get mission creep where suddenly there's only funding available if you have an HIV AIDS component into your, um, mm. in your program. And now it's hard to get funding for, you know, agricultural training, you know, unless you do that too. And it, it's, um, it's a big messy sector. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Okay. I, I want to come back to climbing and this will also tie into everything that we're talking about. Um, if I'm doing my math right, you'd been climbing for what, four years or so before you went to Malawi? You had a couple of years back in Canada and then, um, and then in the States before moving there? Yeah. Yeah. I started in 2011 in, in Ireland. Um, after I had actually planned to start, uh, I would have started in Canada, but literally one day my friends were like, yeah, we're, we're, we're thinking about going climbing and it sounded great. And then the next day they were speaking an entirely different language. You know, <laughs> they were suddenly talking about sending 510B on the overhanging with the roof and the prow and doing dinos from crimps to jugs uh, and, you know, resting on slopers and like, that all makes sense to you now, but you know, for people who aren't climbers, that is all incomprehensible and, and really kind of, um, isolating. Um, and, uh, and it kind of sets up this barrier where it's like, you know, I felt suddenly uncomfortable to engage in that sport because I was like, I have no idea, like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. So I really feel for people who just walk into the gym on their own and uh, like seeing other people who know what they're doing, but then also are speaking a totally different language that that really does not invite people in. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I ended up starting in Ireland with other people who were trying it out for the first time. And so we got to kind of learn um, and grow together. Um, did my first outdoor leading in Squamish in Vancouver. Um, and then when I was living there doing my master, they took a track climbing course and started track climbing. And then when I was visiting my wife in Cincinnati, we would go down to the Red River Gorge, mm. um, Kentucky, and climb on some of the best sport climbing around. And, yep. um, and then, yeah, so I was doing a, a bit of everything um, by the time I moved to Malawi. Um, and I had a home climbing wall. We knew we wanted to um, adopt kids since I haven't worked, but it's a very long process. So knowing that I might need to take a baby monitor out into the backyard rather than go to the climbing gym and <laughs> built a training wall in the backyard and planned to do that again when we moved to Malawi and continue climbing because I knew there wasn't going to be much infrastructure. I thought that, you know, I don't want to just climb on a eight foot wide little climbing wall. So uh, I had the 
uh, foresight to ask uh, for discounts as much as possible and get as many holds, as many T-nuts and bolts uh, as I could to uh, eventually equip uh, a, like, oh, how long was that going to be? Um, six times eight, something like a like a 50 foot long bouldering wall. Oh, wow. To a commercial gym density. Um, so I had, you know, that's like maybe six, um, six boulders per eight to 10 feet was what I was hoping to do. And I figured I would get to Malawi, find a place that was interested in having a climbing wall and donate that stuff and help them build and set it up. Okay. Um, that was, that was the initial plan when I moved. Um, we had a shipping container, so I figured this is the chance to do it cheap so we don't have to pay like tons of money to, to ship things over to Malawi. Got it. Um, you can, you can DHL thing. I had the DHL paperwork back and forth from Malawi and it, it costs a pretty penny. So, um, taking advantage of the shipping container was, was really important. And, uh, yeah, then, uh, built a, the training wall in the backyard, uh, upgraded my, my moon board, um, that was a static 40 degree moon board when I was living in the U S to a, um, made it 12 feet wide. So I wasn't swinging into the supports on the sides mm-hmm. I made it adjustable. And then, uh, between all the moonboard holds, I put all, a bunch of other holds so that I had more options and then people could come over and we could set the, the wall to a lower angle and, um, do some easier climbing, um, for, for beginners. And after a few months in Malawi, I was realizing that I wasn't really, um, I didn't feel like I was really living in the country because I didn't have any Malawian friends or colleagues because I was just working, doing what many people were doing now in the COVID days, uh, working from home. And, uh, so unlike my wife who had, uh, Malawian patients and coworkers and things, it was, you know, just kind of me on my own. And then when we go out for a nice lunch, the price point of that restaurant would mean that most of the staff, most of the people there were not, uh, local Malawian people. Mm. So it, it was really clear that there was this socioeconomic segregation. And so with a few friends, climbing friends, we started inviting their coworkers over to come climbing and it became a really awesome atmosphere where, you know, it didn't matter. It didn't seem to matter what your salary was or how many degrees you had or any of that. It was just, um, you know, all of us struggling to get up this silly 12 foot high wall. Um, and falling off of it and, and having a good time and shouting encouragement. And we saw some, you know, neat power dynamic inversions where we'd have American doctors being taught how to climbing and, and listening attentively to a Malawian gardener with uh, poor English because he's been climbing longer. <laughs> and so he got to be the the teacher, which is, yeah, kind of not, not how the power dynamics you usually experience. My, my friend who came to visit me, one of my climbing partners, he's referred to the powerful experience that happened a little bit later in life for him of, um, he's a white guy being, uh, and he went, his first time was very notable for him when he was the only one in the room who looked like him. And that happened to me probably a lot uh, earlier in life, but as impactful of an experience as that can be, it's, um, you still, as a white person, you still have a lot of the power and the privilege in the room. Mm. So my wife and I have been on a lot of buses where it's like very clear in various African countries, how 
people view the hierarchy and they'll insist that I sit up in the front seat of the bus next to the driver. Mm. Um, and then if like a village chief, um, or somebody really important is also on the bus, like they're sitting on the armrest of the seat I'm in. And until wow. I insist like, no, we can share the seat. And then my wife as a uh, white woman is usually put in kind of some of the front rows, um, but in the, in the back of the bus and, um, not the very back, but like in the, the main part of the bus. Yeah. Um, uh, often kind of a, a, a similar position that some of the men might be in. And then usually it's, um, so that was an exciting experience to see that kind of shift in, um, and kind of equalization, uh, happening at least in that tiny bubble. And I thought that was like a really neat window to try to like see more of an experience more of. Mm. Um, and as I was struggling to find, a place that would build a climbing wall and host a climbing wall in a way that I felt would kind of maximize the benefits in terms of say, like being open late, being able to charge very little, if anything, um, for accessing it. Um, so lots of people could get on it. Uh, we decided that this could be a great thing on its own. And we founded a, a small NGO local nonprofit called climb Malawi that, uh, you know, has a mission to create socioeconomically inclusive community uh, through the sport of, of rock climbing mm. and give people access to the benefits of that community as, as well as the sport. And who is we in that case? Is that you and your wife or you and some of your climbing partners? Um, it was a combination of me and the kind of climbing community that we had built. Mm. Um, so I, I spearheaded and, and drove everything primarily with um, one of my key Malawian partners at the time um, named Joe Tex. And he and I developed everything kind of side by side. Uh, we would go like we we're going out developing crags. You know, it's I would have to rely entirely on him to navigate walking into a village and asking around until we could find the village chief and um, then arranging a meeting with all the other chiefs. So we could talk about how we would potentially come and visit their community and climb on the rocks that was there mm. um, as well as, you know, kind of everything about how we would set up um, the organization. And uh, now that I'm gone, we've got um, a few of the community leaders stepped up um, to primarily three people, a, um, black Malawian man, an uh, Indian uh, descent Malawian, because uh, it's a significant South Asian population in uh, a lot of the most African countries, um, and a American uh, woman who works at the teaching hospital. Um, okay. And they kind of, between the three of them, are, are managing most of the operations day to day. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious how many of the locals had rock climbed before and had any of them was this their first experience climbing on artificial climbs, you know, climbing in your backyard? Was that their first introduction to to plastic climbing for a lot of these people? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think anyone had in the country seen other than in movies. Like that's, that's the line you get from people is like, Oh, we've seen this in movies and I've been curious about it. Um, <laughs> I think within a short span of time, I, you know, had people reach out from different parts of the country, reach out to us saying like they were interested in it or that they had some things. The, the international school had um, in the long way, the main one had, they had a whole bunch of rock climbing holds that somebody had brought over, but they had, uh, they had the kind of tea nuts that you hammer into the back of a wood wall. Mm. And they had planned, they actually wanted to install the climbing wall onto a, 
a brick like masonry wall, which is requires different equipment. Mm. And so those holes had just kind of sat there, you know, somebody else I know had built, um, a little tiny wall for their kids in their house. And they had eventually when they moved, they gave us all that stuff. And then down in Blantyre, actually there was, there is a, um, at the main international school down there, some British folks who were living in Blantyre and the kids were going to that school. They arranged for something that was pretty much the same scale as what we were initially planning. It was about, you know, 40, 50 feet wide bouldering wall. Um, they had built that, but it was um, the kind of the way that operated it, at, which was not that dissimilar from what I'd experienced when I was traveling in Uganda for work or these other places where there's a small like wall at an international school as it was, it was only open one night a week. Um, you had to pay or be a member to, to enter it. And um, at least in the case of Blantyre, the like Malawians didn't feel comfortable entering that space. Uh, it's like, it's the international school. So it's where all the NGO aid workers, kids are going to school. Okay. Um, and so it feels, I think more like a, a space for foreigners essentially. Mm. Um, so, but for the people in our community, yeah, it was, it was definitely their first exposure when we later, um, a few months in, to after founding the the uh, the nonprofit, um, our landlord uh, asked us to take down our wall in the backyard, possibly because it was getting too big. We we're getting like twenty five people on the weekends coming into the backyard trying to <laughs> oh climb. Oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> wow! I was like, I was bringing slack lines and stuff, trying to like keep people entertained because you can only have one or two people on the wall. At sure. First, um, when yeah. it's that small, um, and so we had a crisis and ended up doing a fundraising blitz, buying a piece of land, moving the wall there. And when people would then walk by and see it and they would ask us about the hiking we were doing, like they didn't even have the language. Mm. To, they thought of it as hiking. Um, so it was definitely their, their first experience to it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but people like climbing you know, in, in the, the Melange mountains in the South, there's, um, when you, if you climb, on that wall, you have to know that if you on those the low angle slabs at the start, you may encounter bolts without hangers um, because mm. you know any Malawian child can barefoot climb up those slabs. So okay, um, that hardware can end up going missing uh, pretty commonly, and that's in the some of the boulders we had a about an hour and a half from the long way is a, a mountain called Nkoma Mountain, just gorgeous. Um, not a very big mountain, but um, it would be, what is it? Uh, 300 meters. So it's, it's some of the faces. So that's, um, almost a thousand feet. Um, and there's lots of boulders around there and there's one giant boulder called the Buana boulder, which, uh, means like boss, Buana is boss. So then on that, that boss boulder, we, we bolted one of my favorite routes and it's like, uh, maybe four or five bolts, but to kind of prevent some of the theft uh, that we knew we'd encounter as well as uh, this other crag that's about 45 minutes from the city in an old quarry. Um, we'd essentially have to rappel down to top rope anchors to set up a top rope. Mm. Um, and that way the anchors, those bolts were hard to access. But on the Vana boulder, there was nothing up there to uh, rappel from. So we had to with anchors up top to repel to the top rope anchors and those hangers have, have gotten stolen and need to get replaced. So, um, there's some of the interesting dynamics that, that you deal with. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I want to ask you a little bit more about Climb Malawi. You know, as Westerners, we have the this idea, and people are listening from all over the world, so I sh- it's not everybody listening to this, but, you know, for mo- most of us, we have a pretty wide range of things that come to mind when we think of a climbing gym. You know, obviously we have these commercial mega gyms with bright lights and bright colors and they're clean and all these things these days, saunas and showers and whatever else. And then a lot of us have climbed in dirty basements, you know, with cobwebs and rafters and exposed wires and things like that. And, you know, climbers, we're familiar with doing whatever we have to do to climb, but I'm just curious, um, what was Climb Malawi when it was all said and done? I guess, what was the status of it when you left? You bought a piece of land. Was it outdoors? Was it a building? Was it, um, you know, did it grow beyond just the moon board? Yeah. What, did it, what did it look like? Yeah, so um, I guess one of the things to know about like uh, life in Malawi is that most of the houses are behind a low brick wall um, just because it's it's a very safe country um but petty theft is a thing because you have um it's one of the poorest countries in the world so um you know i had um like shoes disappear or rope disappear things like that so it um that kind of petty theft is is present so to help manage that usually you have a security guard um and um a low brick wall um around at, at your uh, house properties yeah, at okay. the house and then eventually at the climb center. Mm-hmm. Um, so we bought this piece of property. The first thing we did was had to build a, a wall around it so that we could have a guard to guard um, the climbing wall, um, <laughs> wow. which wouldn't necessarily. Yeah, so it's, it's essentially it was this um, 12 foot wide, 12 foot tall um, bouldering wall. Um, but it had, you know, the moonboard LED lights. Um, mm. So it, it had some some things that were, were valuable and hard to replace. Um and um, sometimes things go missing that you don't understand how there's any possible value in it for people. But uh, so, right. you know, we had to be protective. So, yeah, it was initially just a bare patch of land next to the dam of the, the wetland. So there was a um, we are kind of it's probably like 100 feet foot wide um, stretch of land that's really green and people grow vegetables in it because um, it's got a stream running through it that gets pretty big in the the rainy season um so uh but we we're next to a house um and then by the time i had left we had um, raised some more money borrowed some money so we had a shipping container that we had kind of cut windows into and turned into an, an office or storage space we had built the foundations for a house because it was a residential area and a lot of restaurants and ngos operate offices out of basically houses that are just kind of converted to commercial space but that we only got so far as the foundations of that uh, future office. And then we built um, kind of the open air climbing structure. So it was a, essentially a foundation with steel um, columns that supported a, what you just call like an iron sheet. So it's like that, that wavy um, corrugated um, steel uh, roofing that's mm. kind of ubiquitous in, in that part of the world. Um, so that was our roof structure. And then, off of those steel columns, we built roughly nine, no, 80 feet um, long of bouldering wall. Um, cool. So it was like, uh, I think about eight different panels of, of plywood. So we'd have like a 20-degree yeah, wall, 30-degree overhanging wall, 40-degree overhanging wall, 
a barrel feature in the corner that creates sort of a cave um, and a 15 degree wall and then um, two slab walls that were set at like what we call negative five degrees plus the moon board. Um, and so it uh, was a, a pretty considerable amount of space and that's all open air. So it's got a roof on it, but uh, um, it's all open air because the, the weather's pretty great year round other than that sort of really humid stretch. And uh, it's kind of the, I guess the, the dingy part of it is that there was no, we're still struggling to get connected to the city power grid. Um, mm. So, uh, and solar is definitely an option. And so that's what we're running on right now. It's just a couple of floodlights on it, but it's power subsidized in such a way that it's so cheap that people are like, if you can get power, just get, get city power. Okay. Um, and um, yeah, we're still using a, what was initially what was planned to be as a temporary um, pit latrine that we've um, installed that periodically needs to get vacuum truck emptied. And uh, eventually the the house would have plumbing with a septic tank of its own for an office, but we don't, we're not there yet. So it's, it's pretty much an open air facility right now. And then we've got um, climbing pads that we have to take in and out of the shipping container um, okay. each, uh, each day so that they stay safe and don't get stolen. And there's uh we have a staff who actually used to be one of the guards at the compound that we lived in um our compound had four houses total so like two townhouses um yeah kind of in two and two and two um with one security guard and uh, a gardener for the whole property um and uh yeah one of those guards started to climb with us in my backyard and so he became our first staff member and has become a real um leader his name's Ernest um he is very soft-spoken um and uh initially but it's really neat to see him kind of find his voice and uh, in the course of knowing him he's had his first child and you know his salary is now you know supporting him and his wife and his child um which is um nice to to be creating jobs in a difficult economy um and then we've got a, a security guard but Ernest is the one who's usually there when people come to the climbing wall and he helps them find shoes that'll fit. We have a communal um, uh, kind of pool of, of climbing shoes that have been donated and kind of make, make sure they have a good time and um, are do, doing things safe um, because it's a pretty small community. During the busier times, there's always a, a volunteer host who essentially will do that same thing, help people find shoes that they'll, they'll fit for them um, if they're coming in and they're new and make introductions to the rest of the community so that, you know, it's they you know, are immediately introduced to a community. And it's not just like you're coming in looking at a bunch of people who know what's going on and, and you're not sure um, what to do. Um, and that's kind of how that introduction yeah, works for the gym. And then we also do outdoor trips. Um, last year for Global Climbing Day, we were featured by the North Face and they um, made a donation that allowed us to buy a minibus. So that allows us to get like up to 12 people who don't have access to vehicles out to the crag more regularly. Um, and we're still using, uh, we've got a, a pool of equipment that is kind of community pool. Um, it includes harnesses, helmets, ropes, uh, quick draws, so that we can take people um, and the bouldering pads, of course, that um, I left all my, my gear and my pads and people who come over with bouldering pads have left theirs. So those are the ones that end up getting taken to the crag because they're a lot easier to carry than the manufactured ones that we've just got mattresses covered. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, there's still a, a 
a drill for doing more bolting and some of the um, current people have a little experience with that, but nobody's got much experience with it. So that not a lot of new development has been happening lately. It's something we're working on. Yeah. It's, I, I'd love to hear kind of what your involvement looks like these days. You've been, you know, you keep saying like, we're, we're working on this or, you know, we didn't get mm-hmm. to that yet or things along those lines and you're back in the States. So I'd love to hear what your continued involvement is. Um, but also how is Climb Malawi funded? Um, I know one of your goals was to make it inclusive and and have a really low price point so that people, you know, of all economic statuses could come climb and, and discover climbing. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, what is the model? How did that end up working out? Yeah. So uh, by the time I was in Malawi, I had already learned about Memphis Rocks in Memphis, Tennessee, which hopefully all your listeners know about, but they're a... Um, uh, it's an inclusive climbing gym in one of the poorest zip codes in America. And they have a no one turned away for economic reasons kind of approach. Mm. Um, and so taking inspiration from that, that, you know, a bouldering gym, cause you know, you don't have to replace your ropes all the time. It can be very economical. Um, if you have a community pool of shoes and chalk, like the infrastructure, like the holes don't, like you got to replace them eventually, but like you, you can stretch that pretty far. So we basically operate a donation based model with a suggested donation. And then like Memphis rocks, um, try to encourage people who, who can't afford to, um, become basically members through volunteering. Um, mm. and so over the course of a lot of the development and construction and, um, even just like landscaping and things like that, we've, we've leveraged, um, kind of our volunteer base of people who don't have the money um, to afford like making the donation to help us kind of take care of the place and build the place up or, or act as uh, you know, if we go out on a trip to the crag um, we will um, invariably have a lot of um, people from the neighboring villages come and like watch and want to try it out. And so we'll let them use the equipment as well. And so sometimes our, volunteers end up um, doing a lot of belay duty if, if you know what I mean because uh, yeah people living in the village don't um, haven't been trained um, to do that uh, yeah so it's it's a suggested donation only that's uh, negotiable um, so if somebody's kind of middle income Malawian terms they, they might have offered a different rate um, the uh, suggested donation is kept pretty small um, there's a climbing gym in Nairobi in Kenya that their day passes something like equivalent of $20, um, just kind of like in North America, which just prices out a lot of people, unfortunately. Um, so our, actually our monthly membership come as much as you want is set at about $20,000 or 20,000 Quacha, um, which is, uh, or sorry, 15,000 Quacha, which is about $20, um, us. And then the day pass is around like it's a few dollars for day pass, but you could, it could be less than a dollar if, you know, circumstances kind of permit. And then, and then we've got family rates and, and all the rest, but it's all suggested donations. And at the time I left or, or just before COVID hit, um, it was, uh, we had, we had a suggested sponsorship level. Um, I'm using air quotes there um, for uh, essentially $40 a month. And you got nothing extra instead of being a member, you were a sponsor, but like, that was, that was it. It's just, 
you know, it, there was a lot of people who believed in what we were doing and had the money to afford $40 a month instead of $20 a month. So we actually had more people who were donating 40 than 20 oh, cool. um, to help um, subsidize the, 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 um, the operations. And so kind of the model has always been, let's, if we can only grow, you know, staff and things like that at a rate that um, we can cover with those suggested donations, then we can try to use external fundraising efforts to build the infrastructure that's sort of like the one-time mm. purchase. So, and then other gyms like Rockwest in Cincinnati donated a bunch of ropes and shoes. Um, we've had other people donate equipment from different parts of the world, bringing in ropes to kind of help keep and maintain that, um, that balance. But um, COVID obviously represented a huge challenge for us because, um, you know, pretty much every country said, Hey, if you're overseas, come home. Um, all the mm -hmm. Americans left, all the Europeans left, all the Canadians left. Um, and so within a span of a couple of weeks, um, all those people whose donation rate we were relying on oh, evaporated wow. Wow. Um, yeah. and left us kind of limping. So, um, the money, the donation from the North Face has helped us see us through that. People have come back. Um, some people who are no longer in Malawi continue to support us. So um, that's how we've been um, able to grow. But yeah, it was right before COVID hit was when we finished that 80 foot long bouldering wall. And so before that, it was hard to really, we couldn't advertise because we only had this really 12 foot wall that got maxed out really fast. Sure. And then as soon as we could say, okay, now we can start bringing in groups. We can bring in schools. We can bring in NGOs that have, um, that want to do sort of team building stuff. Um, you know, we can, we can really start bringing in a lot of groups COVID hit and we couldn't, you couldn't have any gatherings. Mm. Um, and so that uh, has set us back. And, um, of course with, um, in a country like Malawi, there's like COVID just, it came in late because there's not a lot of traffic to the country, but uh, it just kind of swept through like wildfire because there's no mm. ability to um, social distance. Um, and, you know, access to vaccines was going to be um, slow and difficult. So there's been several waves. Um, kind of Africa did the best in the first wave, I think, of COVID, um, like as a continent. But then uh, as successive variants have come through, it's it's been kind of unstoppable. and Mm. there's sort of a, a new norm that's that's been reached i think in our last conversation you said that malawi was in its fifth wave of covid yeah i think that's i've heard fifth wave um used to you know, for a variety of african countries so yeah yep man yeah and and it's it really you don't know the numbers in any case because um mm. testing came super late and slow um there's a lot of people who um pass away from something and they don't, and people don't know what this sort of a, you don't have a lot of diagnostic equipment uh, at your disposal. And so people like even my, my, the, the American friend who, who's helping uh, manage climb Malawi now, Jamie, she was just sick with um, something that she thought maybe COVID, but then the symptoms didn't align. Maybe it's pneumonia. They didn't really know. They couldn't test. So they just gave her the antibiotics and she got better. And that's kind of like, that summarizes to me what healthcare is like mm. in Malawi. Um, it is, uh, you don't really know. You just treat it and uh, you get better or you don't. And so wow. who, no one really knows how hard Malawi or these other countries were hit by COVID because the 
um, you just don't know. Mm. Yeah. And what is your ongoing involvement? Do you hope to get back there to continue working on Climb Malawi? Have you handed it off? Um, are you still engaged with it from afar? What does that look like yeah. these days? Uh, I'm still engaged from afar. Uh, I'm still the chairperson of the board of directors. And, okay. Um, as a kind of small volunteer organization, it's kind of all the roles are kind of shifting and we all just kind of try to get, do what needs to be done. Um, but um, we are looking to scale up. Um, we've got a potential new source of funding interested in helping us build a, a larger center that that would come with um, funding to hire an executive director, which I think is what the, the organization really needs. Um, I could act as the executive director essentially when I was there. Um, and not get any money from it. But what, what the organization needs now, I think, is a, a Malawian, preferably a Malawian woman who loves climbing to be the executive director to help us like scale and grow the, mm. um, the operation. Um, but because we've had this very grassroots, you know, you know, suggested donation, like, you know, it's, it's really cheap because we only, we only got to pay for, you know, one staff and a, uh, a couple of guards who are on rotation um, then when you try to hire somebody who has the leadership and uh, professional skills to run an organization, you don't have any money for that role. Um, so that's been a, a challenge and, um, uh, kind of, I think held us back from the potential growth that we could have had, um, COVID still probably the biggest challenge, but the, um, the team that's currently running it now, they they all have, their day jobs that are and they're really busy people and so i help coordinate um what they're doing and we try to have nearly weekly meetings just check-ins about operational issues they're keeping things running kind of on the ground um, sorting out challenges uh, on the ground and then i've been um, working with um, jamie and some others on kind of finding additional funding externally to help um, us grow help help be able to hire people um, in uh, more official capacities to, to kind of grow the operations. Mm. I want to ask you how this experience, how living in Malawi, how climbing in Malawi, how that's shaped your perspective of global climbing. You started in Ireland, you know, you've climbed in Canada and uh, here in the States and it's just so interesting, like as a Westerner myself, I have this image in my head and it's changing now because more videos are, are coming out of, you know, featuring climbing in far off places. And there are these local communities of climbers there. Uh, but I mm -hmm. still think of climbing as um, European and, you know, Western North American, basically. Like that seems like the dominant percentage, I guess, of the climbing population. It was really interesting yep to talk with you in our first conversation and, and hear, I guess, how wrong I was about that, maybe how wrong you were about that in your you know initial assessment and how that's changed. I'd love to hear how your perspective yeah. of, of the climbing population globally has shifted. Yeah, as, um, as I imagine a lot of people's experience, you know, at this day and age, probably your first experience or my first experience was the gym and then maybe the local crag and then like the Chris Sharma videos, um, <laughs> now the Adam Andra videos, but I think I still prefer the Chris Sharma videos. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and I, you know, I'd see IFSC world cup circuits and I'd hear about pros and see some of the cool videos, but like that's to me, that was what initially that was what the sport of climbing was for a lot of years. Um, 
And then, you know, I started to hear about these other initiatives and other projects and, and there just seems to be no end of really interesting communities. You know, Memphis rocks was a big inspiration here locally. Um, and I know like the warrior's way, um, group, um, formerly rock warrior's way, people have read, um, uh, that book or espresso lessons, um, you know, they, they work with, uh, yeah, from Arno, they work with, um, veterans who are suffering from PTSD to Mm. use climbing as a, as a therapy, but yeah, there's, you know, I'd see, you'd see videos of um, people going to rocklands and having these epic rock climbing trips in South Africa and um, not as like a thought um, would I have ever made to what the local rock climbing scene is like in the rocklands or nearby. Right. Um, and yet, you know, in, in Cape Town is an organization called Dream Hire that works with I say generally at-risk youth, but um, specifically with refugees and orphans um, who uh, get involved in climbing, get a new sense of community that doesn't result in them trying to find a sense of community in a, a gang. Um, there's uh, Young Ascenders in the Front Range here, um, as well as Escalando Fronteras in um, uh, in Mexico that, that um, the Climbing Initiative works with, um, all working with at-risk youth um, to give them new life skills and use climbing as therapeutics. Uh, you got Climb Like a Woman, um, CLAW in India, who are building an inclusive community for women um, through bouldering events, um, which is really uh, empowering in a healing community space because a lot of harassment that women face in, in India. Um, Umarumi in Peru is kind of an environmental conservation group combined with building sustainable tourism through climbing, uh, working with the local indigenous population to kind of look at their goals for the land and um, kind of do sustainable development hand in hand with communities. Climbing Life Kenya, Paradox Sports, there's just, there's all these different communities all over the place that are doing amazing things. And I, I started to see it as well when I was based in the U S and traveling for work a lot. Um, I was working for a social enterprise that had developed a low cost medical, um, device, a surgical drill. Um, and so I would end up going to Uganda where the drill was developed and meeting, going to the local climbing wall and and hanging out with the, the local climbers, or I'd, um, be in, San Salvador and go to, um, the local crag and just meet up with local climbers there who, um, you know, we're putting up cool new routes there. And so, yeah, it's, it's been really eye opening for me over the past four to six years, I'd say of, um, kind of meeting people and getting exposed to that. And it, it was really important, I think, to have that experience going into Malawi where I had the privilege and an honor to introduce a lot of people to the sport because, um, people weren't exposed. And so they got exposed to climbing through me and, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of development historically in Malawi of, of climbing routes has been like somebody flies in and they like bolt a new route up one of the big mountains. And mm. that's, that's cool. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, and I think a lot of development of routes happens with this like sense of entitlement. Like it's not your land. You just like, you would rock up with your drill, put up a route, um, thinking that you're giving a gift to the world. Um, and you know, there's, 
there's nothing uglier than a sense of entitlement, but, uh, by kind of having this experience, um, it, it helped me kind of break down the, like, we can't help but view everything through our lens and our, uh, our experiences of the world. Um, but the more you're exposed to different experiences and ways of viewing the world, the better you're able to like, try to hold that in check. And I'm sure I made lots of mistakes um, and, and did some damage, but insofar as I could act with intention and humility, I was trying to introduce people to the sport in a way that um, wasn't just like a wholesale, like here's what climbing is, you know? So I, like people would top rope the route and they would be like, I sent it. And it's like, they, like every two moves, they sat on the rope and they, they rested and you know, but they had this huge sense of achievement. And so I had to put like, we we've as climbing is a game we've invented, we've all agreed on, or to some extent agreed on a, a set of very arbitrary rules. Um, you know, I don't think I've sent a route until I've, you know, led it from the ground to the top. Um, the draws can be hung. Some people, it can't be. Some people, you got to <laughs> hang the draws while you go, right. you know, um, that like, you know, where, where does a onsite become a flash? Like these are, are super arbitrary rules. Um, and so as I was introducing people to sport, I was like, I wanted it to give them the space to make it their own thing. Mm. And so I'd be like, just so you know, like a lot of climbers, you know, in other countries, they would view it this way, but we make all these rules up ourselves. So like, whatever you want to do, do it. And so there's, there's a lot of first ascents recorded in the routes that um, I helped develop that were um, the first ascensionists, like they did it on top rope and they hang dog the whole way up it. Mm. Um, but I felt it was important that in Malawi, Malawians should own the climbing. And uh, so I wanted the first ascensionists to be Malawian names. I wanted the name route names to be in Chichewa. I think I cared about that more than some Malawians um, who are just like, you know, why does this matter? But I've seen it, it make a big difference in other places where you go and like, you feel like an outsider because it's, things are all not in your language or like, it's mm. clearly not meant, it's not directed at you. You're not the core audience. And I wanted, you know, insofar as I had an influence to make, uh, to help climbing develop in Malawi in a way that, that a Malawian would later come to the sport and recognize that this was a thing for them mm. and, and climbing in there in, in Malawi was about Malawians and try to center, center them in that experience. I love that. That's awesome. That's awesome. What was the name of the local language? Can you say that again? Chichewa. 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 Okay. Yeah. Can, I have like a baby level. Okay. I was going to um, ask that dialect. Yeah. We, we were <laughs> learning and I could, I, I had a little bit. Um, can, can you say any of the route names? That's what I'm curious about. Um, yeah. Well, it's one of my favorite, one of the hardest routes is Osafoka, which means never give up. That's kind of like what we would shout at each other. Like Osafoka. <laughs> um, and, um, cool. one, uh, Joe Tex, he did the first ascent of one, I think the funnest routes and it was called, um, um, Zona. Cause he got down to the ground and he said, wow, that route is true. Um, and mm. Zona means like, that's true. Or like, so like you might, somebody might say something. And if you really agree with the statement, you might be like zone. Um, and uh. so that's, uh, we named it that, um, 
uh, I did a bouldering route that uh, I had to clear a whole bed of thorns out of the way. Um, so that's called Paminga, which is like on thorns. And um, one of the, my favorite routes uh, on the Buana boulder is Zanse Momo, um, which was kind of like the best translation of um, a little bit of everything because it, it you kind of have to boulder. It's a big boulder, so it swoops underneath. It's overhanging at the start with very difficult feet. And so it's kind of like a little tricky boulder problem, but then you get onto a slab and the slab gets really thin and delicate and balancey. And then you do an overhanging jug haul up to the tankers. Oh, wow. Um, and so it felt like a little bit of everything. Um, and Sansei Momo literally translates to like everything in there. Um, so, but uh, yeah, like Zikomo Kombiri is the thank you very much. Um, there's a lot of, uh, one of the challenges of learning the language is that they use um, NDI, ND, uh, in a lot of things. So like, um if you ask if i ask how you are you're going to respond with indili bueno indi is like i li is like the state of being and bueno is good so um but it's like a hard thing to pronounce because we're not used to pronouncing ndi without unless it's like um got a vowel in front of it mm. like a n d i you just be andy it'll be fine right you got to kind of kind of like intonate uh, ndi without uh there being a vowel there it was was hard to pronounce um but yeah we continue to try to um i still got my flashcards and looking to find a teacher here um although remote teaching got a lot better but we used to do a weekly class um but we want um our kids to um you know our, our boys are adopted from malawi and we want them to to grow up knowing malawi yeah. they'll never they won't likely be fluent um but they do there's some words that we use around the house that are just uh just a chewa. Um, and what are some common ones in your day to day? Um, Ngona is probably one of the ones we say the most, which is like lie down. So like when they're going to bed or for a nap, it's like Ngona. Um, Buera means like come here. Um, Madzi's water. If it rains, that's Mbula. That's another hard like double consonant MV, um, U. And so it'd be like Mbula MV, like lots of rain. Um, and, uh, yeah, so uh, Galu's dog, you know, I we could say Indipatsa, um, just give me. Um, so uh, kind of like that basic level of conversation. Um, and we want them to said no, no Malawi. So while we kind of continue to have ethical questions about the role of, say, Americans in global health as for as my wife's job, and then as well as some unanswered ethical questions about even like if we were just to live and work and have jobs in Malawi, like, is that something that we feel comfortable with due to the like weird economic and power dynamics that's inherent to in being from America and living in a impoverished country. Mm -hmm. um, one way we've hoped to kind of uh, tackle that is just to spend like a month, a year, maybe if we can find a work situation that will allow that where we can go each year for a month and have um, our boys spend a month in Malawi and knowing the country that's um, their heritage and mm. where they're from. I want to ask you more about your boys. Um, first off, what are their names? Uh, Bodhi and Moses. Uh, okay. They, yeah, they are. Um, when we adopted them, they uh, they had given names, um, just like first names. And, are they brothers? Um, they're not biologically related. Okay. Um, so they're... Um, 
I should have clarified biological brothers. Sorry about that. Yep. Yep. No, that's, it's common. Um, so they're, <laughs> uh, they're usually the question we get when people see them is, are they twins? And ah. so sometimes we would say they are now or um, <laughs> not biologically or just yes, because, you know, the, um, and uh, we're having conversations right now because they're getting to the language level where they actually, they're really understanding what we're saying and they're going to be asked that question. Mm. And there's a lot of courses you you take when you become an adopted parent um, about uh, various elements. There's, you know, there's, there's cans of worms within cans of worms here when it comes to adoption and international adoption and transracial adoption. But, um, you know, that your story of uh, as an adoptee is, is your own and you need to be able to end as adoptive parents as our own. And we have the right to that privacy. And so when like random strangers see that we have um, very clearly African children and, and my wife and I are white, they might ask about that. And you can, there's a variety of ways you can handle that situation. You can give the full story or you can shut it down um, either mm. politely with humor or not so politely. And uh, so, just, just um, owning yeah. that they're your boys. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Um, and it's none of their business. Like mm. they're my, they're my family and mm. you know, how that happened has nothing to do with you. Like, got it. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, we need to, yeah, we have to teach, we'll have to teach our boys that like, they don't owe anyone an explanation. Ah. They can just, you know, um, but, um, yeah, they're, they're both born 10 days apart. Um, uh, we knew we wanted to have, um, two or three kids. So, um, when we met both of them, when we loved both of them, we um, pursued uh, adopting both of them. And in hindsight, we're really grateful because they will always have each other. Um, they have a very complex identity. They both have a Malawian heritage. They're effectively African immigrants in, in America. They have, they're living in America as, <clears throat> as African immigrants, as Black with white parents. Um, there's a lot of complexity to their identities that they're going to have to grapple with through their life. And, um, luckily they will always have each other to, um, help each other through that with a, a mm. more similar lived experience. You know, we, we, as white parents, like uh, I can't, you know, we can't be everything to our kids. And uh, I think that's probably true whether you have adopted kids or biological kids, but, um, it's extremely true when you have, um, uh, kids that are a different race than you because they're going to have a lived experience that I will never fully comprehend and mm -hmm. I can't prepare them for. And so we'll have to rely on community um, to, to do that, um, to have, um, you know, black friends, um, black community leaders, black mentors for them that will pursue, um, you know, that, that will also coach us as parents to help navigate that, that complex identity. But yeah. In the meantime, <laughs> they are delightful agents of chaos. They're about to turn to three. Um, they're, they're getting very talkative. They're starting to have a lot of opinions, um, you know, struggling to emotionally regulate, um, those big emotions, uh, especially when you can't communicate very well. Um, but, uh, they're the best. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> oh, it's so fun. Um, I was going to ask you about exactly what you just shared a little bit about. You know, we had a conversation some weeks ago. Uh, you had just climbed at Wizard's Gate in Estes Park, and you were just telling me, you know, as much as you love the Red River Gorge, and that's been your local climbing area, being back in the mountains, sport climbing in this beautiful mountainous setting, 
and having more opportunity for other, you know, types of climbing trad and alpine and things like that. I just remember you telling me that the the mountains give you this extra special joy and it's, you know, that really does seem to be important to you. You've learned that about yourself, that that's important to you. And that's a big part of wanting to move to Denver. Um, what are some of the other things that, that you've been thinking about? Of course, this last year, um, you know, with George Floyd's death and race protests, and there's, there's so much that, that, that all of us are, are learning and trying to educate ourselves about things that we want to wrap our heads around that we will inevitably never fully understand. Um, I'm speaking for myself as, as a white man in this country and, and, and in the world for that matter. But um, w- when you think about the move, when you think about finding a community where you can have, you know, you can be a good parent, have mentorship for yourself uh, as a parent for your black sons, also provide them with, you know, community examples, mentors of the same race. How how are you thinking about all that? I'll leave it really open. I, I have, I guess, more specific questions, but but yeah, what are some yeah. of the things you're thinking about as far as that goes with this move to Denver? Yeah, I think um, it's it's a constant thought. Um, it's uh, something we have to grapple with all the time, and. Um, it, it's certainly challenging. Um, it'd be, it'd be really easier to just kind of like go back to, to life as normal, I think, but, uh, for the fact that I have black kids. And so that like is an everyday reminder of like little things like right now, I don't ask for receipts when I go and buy like a small thing from a store, but, um, I'm going to need to start modeling that behavior that like my kids will need to ask for streets because they're going to get accused of being of shoplifting. Um, oh, man. I know, I know that's going to happen. And, um, you know, even at this age when I've, I've been in like small towns and parks on a rainy day and had cop cars like lurk around us when there's no one else around. And I'm like, they're, they're three, but like, this is weird. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's kind of always on our minds. Um, you know, it's, we're moving from Cincinnati, hopefully to Denver. Um, Cincinnati has um, over 40% black population and Denver has like 10% black population. And we would be quite happy to live my wife and I in small town, Colorado um, at this stage in our lives. But uh, um, if you go outside of kind of more metropolitan areas, it's going to get really white really fast. And so um, we, you know, have to grapple with the fact that we want, um, our boys to grow up seeing other people that look like them. And so, um, part of that is, you know, our social networks. And, um, I have a, had originally a really white friend base in Cincinnati, um, just because I made friends through the climbing gym. And when I went into the climbing gym, there was, there wasn't anybody of color at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's changing now. And I've been involved in like local efforts here, um, to also like encourage and grow diverse participation in the sport. Cause I want, um, my boys to be able to go to the climbing gym and feel like it's a place that they're welcome in. Um, but in other ways, you know, we're looking at, you know, who like, um, you know, the person who cuts my hair is white, but so I, you know, we found, we go to a black barbershop for Moses and we go to a, a black locust for Bodhi, who's got um, locks um, to get his retwisting. And we had to, you know, 
it was very difficult to find a pediatrician who was not only within our insurance network, but also accepting new patients and is black. And that's, you know, that was hard in a city that's, um, you know, over 40% black and we're moving to a place that's 10%. Mm. Um, and so that's going to be really hard nationally. 5% of doctors are, um, are black. Um, and the national, I think it's the U S is 13% black. And so Denver has a, a population that's, um, you know, there's a lot of people of color, um, as well, but you know, a lot of those are going to be Latinx, um, or, you know, other, this is that are going to look like our boys. So, um, but even here, you know, in Cincinnati where you've got 40%, um, black population or more, it's very easy to go out, um, to a, you know, a restaurant or something and have it be almost all white. Cause it's still, mm. um, a very somehow segregated city. Um, at, at least kind of seems that way. It's, it's, uh, really noticeable when you go to a place that's, that's really mixed. Um, it shouldn't be noticeable, but it is. And, um, so as we look to move to Denver, you know, we're trying to choose our, you know, where we would buy a house based on the diversity of the neighborhood, as well as like the quality of the school network. And then, um, in some ways we've just had to come to terms with the fact that as we've been even experienced in Cincinnati, it's very easy to have, um, a person of color or a black person specifically be the only one in the room that looks like them. And so rather than trying to overly stress about, um, that like kind of the only way around that is I think moving to, uh, a place with a very large black population, um, work on kind of connecting to community and, um, you know, potential mentors and the, and the black community and, um, building relationships kind of more one-to-one and less worried about, um, cause it's just, too hard. You can't control it. Um, mm. what everyone on the street looks like. How old were they when they left Malawi? They were about, um, 15 months. Okay. Uh, so like they, they turned one in December and then COVID hit in like March and mm. then they moved. So there's a year and a couple months. Okay. And they've been in the States um, since then. And they're three now. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, and we, we brought them home. We met Moses when he was two weeks old and just itty bitty because he was premature and also born. Um, yeah. And, uh, Bodhi when he was uh, one month old and, um, kind of visited them throughout that period, but it took till they were 10 months old before we were able to, to bring them home full time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, man, thank you for uh, sharing all that. It's fascinating to see a glimpse into your life. And it just feels like a really, just a super interesting social experiment. It'll be like, what an experiment of nature versus nurture to see, you know, your kids' personalities develop and grow and and them become their own humans and how Mm -hmm. similar they might be as, you know, twins who aren't twins. I I just think that's, it's great. It's just so interesting. And um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, it's been a lot of it's been a lot of fun having two of the. It, you know, it's when when their naps go out of sync and you have just one um, awake. It's it's like a whole different world. How much calmer it is than having two of them awake at the same time. But um, you know, wouldn't trade trade it for for anything else. And um, it's been really fun having two of them because you know 
every week is different. Every month is very different um, throughout their lives so far. And there'd be things that you know, the behavior kind of comes and goes in phases. And so there'd be things that were like, oh, maybe this is like a 15 month year old thing, but you know, Moses is doing it and Bodhi's not. So we realize it's oh. like actually like a personality difference thing <laughs> and not just like, oh, they're at that age where like, this is a thing that they do. We're like, nope, this is just like, that's just a Bodhi thing. Um, so <laughs> that, it's, is, that is interesting. It's fun to have that, that reference point. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, there's one big topic we haven't talked about yet. You did mention the climbing initiative, and uh, I'd love to hear more about that. That is actually how you and I connected. Uh, Nikki, who works with the climbing initiative, reached out to me and told me about the climbing initiative and thought it'd be cool to do an episode featuring it. And rather than doing that directly and featuring this organization, I really thought it'd be, I, I always just like to get to know a human being. And I was really drawn to your story. I thought your story was different and, and interesting in this perspective of, um, you know, this life lived in Africa and developing climbing there and integrating there is just, you know, something I've, I haven't had much exposure to. So it's been really fun to learn about that. Um, but I'd love to hear more about what the climbing initiative is and how you first got involved with that. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, it's been really interesting to be talking with you on, uh, knowing that there's all these other heroes and people I look up to who you've, you've interviewed. And, um, so it, it feels, you know, a little bit like my life feels really ordinary to me and really boring. So, um, uh, it, you know, why, why bother, um, talking to me and why are people listening? But it, um, like I am excited to share about, you know, the, the great things that are happening in Malawi and, um, with the climbing initiative. Um, and as, uh, I look up to Cody Cameron, the, the head of, um, climbing United at the American Alpine club. And he has one of his sort of life philosophies that really resonated with me was to, to try to use your privilege with honor. And so, um, since, um, since we're talking about it, love to share about these other organizations. Um, but yeah, I got involved with the climbing initiative back when I was still in, um, in Malawi. Um, and the climbing initiative is a, a nonprofit based here in the U S um, that's working to, um, support the sustainable growth of the international climate community. Um, so more of a focus on like outside of say North America and Europe than, um, inside and, uh, started as, uh, um, through a, a Yale grant and a Yale accelerator program and started primarily looking at case studies and documenting, um, the growth and development of the sport in these places like Macedonia, Slovenia, um, Palestine, um, the places you don't normally think about the climate community as we've kind of discussed. And then as the organization's grown, it's been around for a couple of years now, groups like Climb Malawi have reached out to the climbing initiative to, um, you know, connect and uh, share their, their story as well as, you know, ask for support on a variety of things. So I got first involved with um, the climbing initiative uh, in kind of the capacity of their best practices project. Um, so with all these different organizations like, Climbing Life Kenya, Umarumi, Climb Malawi, Escalando Fronteras, CLAW, Climb Like a Woman, um, talking to the climbing initiative came clear that some sort of body of knowledge, like there, 
we're all trying to solve kind of similar problems. And so mm. um, the best practices project, I think of it as kind of like the frequently asked questions of climbing community development project came about where uh, the climbing initiative was initially interviewing people all over the world to kind of get their lessons learned. But now it's, it's transformed into a different approach where we're having just authors contribute so that we don't have not everything comes through our lens and through our voice, but is really reflective of the international um, community's voices. And so I was interviewed at Climb Malawi as part of that. And then later um, was brought on to kind of spearhead the, the best practices project and now also serve as the director of impact for the organization looking to develop a road map, a road roadway for us to contribute to um, the growth of these other climbing organizations that are reaching out, um, for support. Mm. And this, uh, this isn't your full-time job, correct? This is a volunteer position, at least for the time being. Yeah. For the time being, we are an early stage organization. Like I said, a couple years old, um, we've had a lot of assistance with the help of like the Yale accelerator program and have been welcomed and encouraged by the American Alpine club and the access fund. Um, the access fund gets these calls, you know, when people are developing, say in, I don't know, Guatemala, um, to pick a random place. Um, and suddenly access gets shut down and then there's no, you know, as people, if you're familiar with the, the shutdowns of, um, some of the world-class and really famous climbing areas in Australia, other countries don't have an access fund who's fighting for access. And mm. so they end up calling the access fund and they're, they're squarely focused on, they got a, a, a staying true to their vision um, of fighting for access in America. Um, and, you know, all they could do is offer some advice to fix a problem that's already gotten out of hand. And um, they're excited about what we're doing because we're hopefully working with communities at an early stage so that that sustainable development can happen um, from day one. And you end up with like develop like learn from the mistakes that have happened in history of American climbing and European climbing so that, you know, you don't end up with these major closures and access issues. Mm. And um, so, yeah, right now we're working on a revenue model and pretty much all the staff are, we have a couple paid positions, but they're not paid very well. Um, and it's, we're all have our other day jobs essentially and okay. working to make it um, hopefully a, a uh, fully funded and, and um, salaried organization because there's it's very clear to us from the you know every other week we're getting contacted from somebody in some part of the world who are like we need help and we could be doing a lot of good and I think that you know money you know these organizations in themselves that I've you know referenced like they would greatly benefit from additional funding um, but. You know, there a lot of them are trying to say, solve similar challenges, and so we're trying to create a common body of knowledge and a kind of a codified um, set of resources to help those organizations. And so, a, in theory, a dollar invested in the climbing initiative would have a, a much broader impact because it would help us develop our accelerator program that would then help um, each of those organizations, kind of like the way Yale, the accelerator, helped the climbing initiative grow and um, hit the ground running, we could be doing that for these other organizations. And it might be hard to kind of wrap your head around those like challenges. Cause you know, if, if like you and me um, in 
our, our past selves would have just thought about like the climbing gym and the crag. Um, we, we don't realize all the systems that are in place to actually like support that. Um, so, you know, some of the things that, um, we've done is really work with these organizations who have maybe a vision, an idea that's a kernel, like, you know, Climb Malawi was built a socioeconomically inclusive climbing gym. Um, you know, maybe Climb Like a Woman was trying to just get more women involved in the sport in India. Um, you know, it's, it's really easy to have a, uh, exciting vision and get people behind it, but then actually like building an organization that does that effectively mm. is, is a whole other thing. So one of the things we often work with organizations on is refining their mission, vision, and logic model, or like impact model, essentially, where the, the theory of change, where it's like, how are you actually like, what's the change you want to do? And what are the actual programs that are going to need it to be in place to do that? Mm. Um, we also would work with them on developing kind of impact measurement programs. So like Escalando Fronteras is um, working with at-risk youth and using uh, kind of based on the research of adolescent psychology, we've been able to develop impact measurement tools like surveys that um, kind of assess um, the youth's change in their um, perception and knowledge of certain um, topics so that they can actually see if, you know, they think they're like, they're witnessing and they believe they're having this um, transformative impact on lives because, you know, they, they have a relationship there and they can see that. Right. Um, but, you know, you want to quantify that in some way um, to make sure, you know, you're seeing things as they actually are. Maybe you're, um, there's more you could be doing. You can refine the programs. It, it also can enable organizations to publish um, and draw more attention to that kind of activity, that adventure-based therapeutics. Um, I was just thinking that if you measure it, that's got to that's gotta do um, a lot of good for getting fundraising dollars and getting other people on yeah. board with it, things like that. Yeah. And for example, Uma Rumi in Peru doing environmental conservation and sustainable tourism development. Um, they were trying to get funding, but at the time didn't have a website or social media presence. And so like they weren't getting anyone's attention um, to get money in the door. So the thing we worked on with them was developing a communication strategy so that they could get funding. Other organizations, we work more on a fundraising strategy, but you know, th there's a lot of different components to running a community organization and trying to introduce people to the sport, um, thinking of like climb Malawi, like we still don't have an exactly solved system for waivers with, with a very different liability situation than climbing, uh -huh. um, say in America, a member, like a, a detailed membership system and managing volunteers. We get a lot of gear donation, but like, um, if, if everyone in the community is really new to climbing, who can you rely on to inspect that equipment and make sure that the rope's still safe after uh. it's been donated? Um, so, you know, in a similar way to how a guiding service might have a regular inspection program and an inventory management system, like there's a lot of systems, policies, procedures that go into, um, managing that stuff. You know, what Climb Malawi is doing well right now, I think is the, you know, we got really strong relationships with the villages, um, with the, the community leaders, the chiefs, um, and strong Malawian participation. Um, some of these systems and policies, like they, you know, are, are not where they could be. And these are things that don't need to be reinvented, you know, mm. um, that they're things that, um, can be kind of, uh, systematized in a way that's really easy to, to package and, and share. So our, um, 
our best practices project is really kind of like these key lessons of like, okay, if you're going to do sustainable trail management or try to do conservation around cliffside vegetation or raptors, or you're trying to build an inclusive, in, sorry, inclusive climate community, what are kind of the key things you want to like be thinking about? Um, and so if a community reaches out to us, we've got that and it's going to be free to everyone. We're going to be releasing um, sort of sample chapters in November that uh, possibly before this podcast comes out um, okay. that uh, we'll cover off some of those topics, but uh, we've m- received funding to kind of transform this into a digital platform. That'll be a much more dynamic living resource that we could also link to then how to do these things, like how to do an economic impact analysis that can help you, you know, get, get further support from the local government because you can prove uh, with numbers that, climbing is bringing in tourism. Mm. Um, but then beyond that, we also partner with these organizations um, and are working to facilitate gear donations uh, as well as you know the training around inspection and maintenance of that equipment. A climbing leadership fund, for example, we're helping bring uh, one of the leaders of Climbing Life Kenya over to um, the U.S. to do a single pitch instructor course because um, there's no... When you don't have a mountain guide association, you don't have any formal accreditation to be like, hey, this is a mountain guide. So that's another challenge, another piece of the puzzle that like we have solved in North America um, and could be better solved over there. So um, yeah, it's it's been amazing to kind of get to know a lot of these different organizations and see the amazing work they're doing, both in terms of transforming the sport of climbing, like I think locally and nationally, like internationally, as well as kind of the various ways communities are using climbing to do things like environmental conservation or working with at-risk youth um, or building inclusive community. Um, but, you know, they're down kind of in the weeds in the day-to-day. Most people do this as kind of a volunteer thing and right. they don't have the space or time to step back and think about like what's the right organizational model for me or like how do we develop a, a revenue model how do mm. we manage um to inspect our gear uh you know these kind of like high level strategic questions are really tricky and difficult to solve on your own and that's where the climbing initiative is is hoping to act as a partner um and a a resource and, and help create a path for these organizations to not necessarily not do it our way, but um, uh, access resources that will enable them to, to really bring their vision to reality. Um, and then also hopefully connect with other organizations. Um, so we connected Dream Hire in South Africa and the Recreation Project in Uganda, which originally worked with former child soldiers and um, the young ascenders in the front range in, in Colorado, all working with you know, youth around the subject of um, like life skills and um, therapeutics. And at the time they hadn't met each other and mm. they're all trying to figure out like the recreation project has a kind of more rig- uh, a program, a, a curriculum they've developed over years. And the Young Ascenders is kind of in an earlier stage working to develop those um, resources and together they can actually do that without us having to like even be involved. Um, ah. So the climbing initiative, yeah, hoping to be a connector, also work with these communities to find out what are the problems they need to solve and help create those resources that they can then access. And then 
also making sure those stories get shared because like me, I think most people hadn't heard of any of these organizations or people or sometimes places. Uh, right. And that's kind of, it's almost like being erased, you know, because they, they don't make the climbing media. Um, but there's a, a history of climbing for Palestine. There's a history of climbing in Jordan, the history of climbing in Uganda. And those histories matter and need to be told. Mm. Well, thank you for that. That was an excellent explanation. Um, you know, I've been reading about and, and learning about the climbing initiative for some weeks now since I first talked to Nikki. And I think I have my head around it a lot better after hearing you describe all that than I had to this point. And it sounds like, you know, obviously you're, you're connecting these organizations so they can learn from one another, but you're just existing as this resource. So you're, you're basically systematizing all of the things that happen behind the scenes that need to happen behind the scenes for so many different organizations so that they don't have to reinvent the wheel and you're just helping streamline those processes. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's a key part of, of what we're doing. Um, Veronica Baker, our executive director and one of our founders um, would also like point out that sometimes there's a lot, there's a misalignment in the industry where, you know, um, somebody wants to have, you know, sustainable like ecotourism and climbers want to travel to you know some place and have say slovenia go to go climbing in slovenia and have like a, a really great experience that's you know connecting with the community and um things like that but you know currently there's no significant it's not like in kalimnos apparently you can walk down the street and you'll get like advertised for climbing hostels uh climbing massages like there's there's an a, infrastructure there that's you know tourism dollars geared towards that climbing community same thing here in the red river gorge we've got um restaurants that are staffed and and um, serve a lot of um climbing visitors um gear shop campgrounds like focused on climbers but in i believe slovenia is um the, the case where they've you know since the 90s they pointed out there's no no one's focused on this like potential ecotourism business so there's this potential misalignment that without a lot of work it's kind of like when you you got a climbing goal for the day and your climbing partners have other climbing goals for the day and if you just like put a little bit of work in you can make all those goals line up and mm. achieve everything in, in a single day and i think that's part of what um the climbing issue is doing as well as like helping access those resources that you know, an organization in America or in um, France or Spain might have um, access to in terms of growing their community and their organization and having the impact they want to have um, and making those resources available to people who might not be as easily able to access them. Mm. Well, that's a great analogy. I, I love that. And um, I want to ask, I mean, a, a huge part of having you on and hearing your story and learning about the climbing initiative is introducing the climbing initiative to my audience. I mean, there's something like 10,000 people listening to this at this moment in time from, from all around the world. And, um, you know, if people feel, uh, compelled by, by these stories, hearing about the climbing initiative, hearing about climb Malawi, these other organizations may be closer to home for them. Um, I'm curious to hear what your vision is. Like, how can people that are listening help out? What do you guys need? Is it donation dollars? Is it just spreading awareness? Yeah. How can people learn more, get involved, those sorts of things? Yeah, I think, you know, we love people reaching out. Um, 
but we are trying to build both Climb Malawi and the Climbing Initiative into organizations that can have full-time staff that actually are uh, meeting the demand of all, all the potential impact that, that both organizations could be having. So um, donation dollars are, are certainly welcome. Um, we're exploring a membership model um, at the, the Climbing Initiative um, that could be a way to kind of do recurring um, donations, um, spreading the word about us as well. Uh, we'd also love to hear about, you know, if you're aware of community in another part of the world that you think we should connect with. Um, we'd, we'd love to hear about that. Um, but uh, yeah, unique skills um, are always welcome, but uh, we've been growing as sort of a, a volunteer organization and um, are now looking to kind of take a thing to the next level where we're, um, our staff are working full time to meet the, the needs of the demands that we're getting from communities all over the world. So cool, man. So exciting. And um, so fascinating to learn about this and have this conversation with you today. Um, in wrapping up, I do want to ask you a little bit more about yourself. And I'm curious what your own climbing is looking like these days. What's next for you with your climbing, what you're excited about? I know you have two three-year-olds. Yeah. Do you get to climb anymore? <laughs> yeah, I do. I climb all the time. Nice. Um, I'm very grateful. Uh, yeah, through a combination of um, help from my wife, who will um, take care of the kids while I'm gone, which is a big job when you're all on your own. But I actually don't think this season, most days, I think I've had more days at the crag when they're with me. Um, I started okay. bringing them to the crag. And this is the red. Yeah, the Red River Gorge. Um, luckily, we didn't have, you know, when, on a recent family trip out to, to Denver, we... Um, I, I did a bit of climbing without them and a bit of climbing with them. So I know that there are crags that are very easy to walk to um, when you've got some kids, but then there's some crags that are um, very difficult to walk to, especially when you're coming from a low elevation. Um, uh, so um, luckily here, the approaches aren't, uh, you know, they're usually a couple of miles. So it's, it's pretty manageable, even if you got kids on your shoulders, but um, uh, kind of, it wasn't until last fall, fall 2020 due to, we moved back in the spring, but due to COVID, we didn't go climbing like outside. We didn't want to risk having to go to the hospital at a time when hospital resources were stretched really thin. So, um, they were almost two when they started going to the crag and still in diapers. So I've was taken to the crag through the transition of potty training. And, um, now they're, they're just starting to get into their harnesses and in their climbing shoes and up on the wall. They mostly like just climb up like, eight feet or so, and then go swinging with the <laughs> rope. Um, that's, that's more their, their jam right now. Um, but yeah, I've, um, uh, my climbing is, uh, in an interesting space, I think, because I've, um, it's a combination of like, I don't get, I'm trying to always get better. I work with our company climbing for, for coaching. Oh, and, cool. Um, I've been working with um, Lore at uh, Warrior's Way on mental coaching because on, when it comes to sport climbing, I find uh, it mental performance a major limiting factor for me. So it's um, the project, if you will, hasn't been a route um, this, this season. It's actually been making rock climbing uh, or sport climbing salubrious for me, making it life-giving so that um, before it used to be like... Um, so draining that at the end of like a weekend, I'd like 
Monday morning at work, I'd be like mailing it in, you know, like I was mm. just like wiped out from the effort of really putting myself out there. Um, like stress, fear, that sort of thing. Yeah. Just like, you know, I think it's been interesting to learn and, and talk with a lot of people now as I develop more of a vocabulary and more of uh, mental models um, for understanding the stress and just general emotional response that people have to a route um, or to, to different aspects of climbing. Climbing's really cool in that it it like you can't hide anything. Like, <laughs> you have to show up with your full being. You have to use all of your physical capability. You have to use a lot of technique. Um, and there's a huge mental component of it where even right now, I think, you know, there was, I was getting pumped off of routes that um, were the same grade as ones that I was doing as a warm up um, the next day. And I think it was, I, my hypothesis right now that I'm going to be testing is that it was, it came down to like how comfortable I was on a certain size of grip at a certain angle, mm. not because I wasn't strong enough to hold it, but because I couldn't relax enough. And so I got pumped off from a stress response and sure. um, not from an actual physical thing. So I've, I kind of like, I've always bouldered a lot harder than my sport climbing would indicate. Um, and uh, so yeah, it's, it's been a really interesting journey of, of working with lore. Who's fantastic to kind of better understand. Um, it used to feel a little bit black box when it came to my sport climbing, I'd show up at a crag and it'd be a roll of the dice as to whether or not I was going to float up something or whether I was going to like, just, you know, punt off everything. And, uh, you know, now I'm at a, a place where I'm like much better able to climb and understand, like, if I, if I got pumped off the wall, like why that happened. And if mm. I floated, why that's happening. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd much like historically would rather have thought the, like the emotional component doesn't matter that much, but it's, um, it's become the, the thing that does matter the most. Um, and just kind of like Tonde was saying, when you interviewed him, when he's setting a route, he's trying to craft something that's going to create an emotional experience for somebody that's, that's kind of changed how I viewed going out to around real rock, you know, it's, it's, uh, a rock climb is a sort of a playground in which we get to go. It's a stressful playground in which we get to have a different kind of, um, experience and play different games. And that might be how many pull-ups can you do to the arms fall off, but it might be getting a little scared and seeing how you can manage that. And it's, it's a really cool sport that we get to, to play with. So, um, but yeah, my trouble is I, I love bouldering. Um, I love drag climbing and trying to get better at that. So took a clinic, uh, took Mary Eden's crack climbing clinic, um, in Indian Creek in the spring with, with Laura and Stanley and, and Kaya. Um, and, um, you know, there's just, you want to do all the things and they got <laughs> three-year-olds. So it's like, I don't know when to boulder, when to go track climbing, when to go sport climbing. Um, and the, the three-year-olds are in the background the whole time, but, um, it's definitely a, um, a sport that I continue to get, get better at and is continuing to bring new life energy and joy. So it's been great. That's amazing to hear. And thanks for being so open and honest about that. Cause that's something that we probably don't open up enough about, you know, uh, we don't share enough about cause it's not the sexy training sending stuff, but it's so relatable for so many people listening and, um, awesome. Awesome to hear how it's, it's changing for you and growing for you. So 
it's it's interesting to think about like who's doing the more impressive thing you know the person who's like going up there and like screaming on tiny little edges and falling off and going like wow that was fun versus the person who's like having a severe stress response and learning how to like manage that um, <laughs> like that like they're having the bigger epic to me yeah. you know? like that's yeah. that's they're really pushing themselves like that is that is hard yeah hard work um and they're having a death-defying experience up there yeah to give a, a quick example i had um for a while before I moved to Malawi, um, uh, for a couple of years in a row, Canadian friends would come down and we'd have a big like week long climbing trip. And on the last one we had, um, my main climbing partner, Scott Pagel joined us. Um, and he, you know, the, this was like, for me as like an introvert and somebody who's like, kind of feels energy scarce and for who sport climbing is really, and it was energy draining. It's getting better now. It's getting more life-giving. Um, at the end of that trip, I was like, exhausted i was kind of in guide mode because you know scott and i were like the locals and we we're trying to make sure everyone has a good time um and uh you know i was also trying to send things before i moved so i had this added pressure i was putting on myself to like get the projects done um and so you know at the end of that trip on the last day i like i couldn't do a route i couldn't like couldn't even get to the top of it i was just like i was near tears on the wall just like drained and shattered emotionally and uh, my partner scott i think he sent his hardest route it wasn't the hardest grade but it was realistically the hardest route i think on the last day of the trip just because he, he managed to like he gathered a crowd they cheered him on that was what he thrived on and like he he found that extra 10 percent, and he sent this route and he was like physically wrecked for i think a week um, and like <laughs> wow. i hibernated for a day and like emotionally recharged and was like ready to go even harder like after a single day, because what, what was like drained and shattered was not me physically. I wasn't mm. climbing at my physical limit. I was climbing at my emotional limit. Mm. Um, and it's been, yeah, really neat kind of exploring it. Like, like I said, building a vocabulary and some mental models to like understand what that's like, um, not just for me, but for other people and seeing them have that journey on the wall too. And, um, and when you have some language, you can actually talk about it, then, then it does become easier to actually have those conversations with the Craig and then people feel more comfortable talking about it. And, um, you know, it's, you know, there's some people who like find leading really stressful and have this pressure that because of the game, the artificial game we've made, this with these rules we've made, like, it's not real unless you lead it. The top roping doesn't count. And that's, it's a lot of nonsense, you know, it's, mm. you know, or they're just all games we're trying to play. So it's, um, but it's, it's hard to, for example, I've known in my brain that, um, you know, grades are kind of meaningless for a long time, but it took going to Indian Creek to learn it in my heart. <laughs> you know, in Indian Creek, all the grades are ambiguous for people who don't know because it's, you know, body shape dependent. So like finger size my, dependent. Yeah. Yeah, like my perfect hand crack is not going to be the next person's perfect hand crack. And so there was five eights I didn't finish and there were five elevens I cruised. And mm. it's like, you know, it was, I was having a relationship with each route and I'm trying to maintain that without losing sight of it and getting lost in a debate about is that 12C or is it 12A? Um, <laughs> because, um, you know, it's, it doesn't matter. It's It's a unique opportunity to like, face a challenge within yourself and like meet that challenge and it's so easy to 
I think grades are a game and they're, so they're a game within a game and they become a trap and mm. um, it's, it's just really fun to kind of explore all this stuff. And um, working with a coach has been really helpful. We're working with Laura to, to help also like put that all in perspective as well as Chris Hampton at, at power company, um, keep it all um, in check and, and make it life giving. Well, that is so refreshing to hear all that. It is, it's always been so fascinating to me and I get lost in this all the time, just the amount of stress, uh, whether it's performance anxiety or, you know, real fear uh, that we can put ourselves through when we're choosing to sign up for this arbitrary game. You know, we're, we're mm -hmm. doing it theoretically because we love it because it's so much fun and then we just get lost <laughs> in, in the weeds of... Uh, expectation and performance and disappointment and the grade game within the game, all those sorts of things. So um, yeah, really refreshing to hear how you're thinking about that. Thanks for sharing all that. That's really cool. Yeah. Happy to share. I could talk about this stuff all day long. <laughs> <laughs> um, on that note, you know, at the start of this conversation, you mentioned to me offline that there were that you'd been thinking about this conversation and that there were, that there were three things that you felt were important for you to share. Um, I just want to make sure that we touched on all of them in this conversation. Is there anything that we've, that we've left off that we haven't gotten to yet that uh, you feel is important to talk about? No, I think, um, you know, we've covered off uh, pretty much everything. You know, I, I, I uh, the three things were really that, you know, I think, like you and like me, a lot of people probably come uh, or have the perspective in the sport that like we once had that um, the sport is, you know, your gym and your, your local crags and the famous crags and some of the pros and, and comps, but there's, um, you know, number two, the reality is that there's, there's a lot of amazing communities out there in Uganda and um, El Salvador and Palestine and, um, you know, Vietnam and, and all these amazing local climbing scenes that, um, uh, are, are doing really cool things. Um, and not just, you know, not just really great climbing in, in amazing places, but also, um, using climbing as a sport to actually make um, a significant difference. Um, and, um, you know, at, at the climbing initiative, we kind of have this, uh, theory of change. that looks like concentric circles where, you know, we've all had the experience of the climbing initiative for everyone who's involved feels passionately because they've had their lives changed by the sport. Um, and um, I think a lot of climbers have, have had that experience. And if you want to change a system, you, you need to change, you know, all the pieces in the system. And those are the, those are the people, you know, so it, we believe that through the sport of climbing, we can really actually change the world and create a better world because it, it changes us as individuals. And then we go out and change our families and our communities um, what changes our countries and that happens both kind of within the sport of climbing and I think spills over into the, the broader world. Um, so kind of, you know, our vision at the climbing initiative is, um, a better world through climbing and, mm. um, you can't, you can't change everything. You know, I got a background in the water sector and it's very entrenched. It's very slow moving. Um, it's, you know, climbing represents, a way to find common ground with people like in climb Malawi, you've got that, um, you know, common passion that, that cuts across different socioeconomic differences and different cultures and different backgrounds creates a common ground. And we can create these windows to a better world where like 
money and you know power are less important maybe not not important but you know take take more of a backseat to our passions for a little while or in a small space um that that can give us hope of what what the world could look like and um you know as yeah, thirdly just that the um those amazing communities that we've been talking about all over the world doing amazing works like they're they could be doing a lot more and and growing a lot faster and having greater impact um, with you know a small addition of, of resources um, be that financial donations be that um, kind of organizational um, you know understanding of how to do impact assessments how to do research how to how to better promote their story um, and so that's kind of what the climate initiative is is all about is trying to help uh, those organizations accelerate the impact that they're trying to have in the world. Well, I love it. I love the vision. Um, I've really enjoyed learning about all of this today and learning about you and your story. Uh, for people listening, I will link to uh, all resources, Climb Malawi, the Climbing Initiative. I'll link to um, to Tyler and, all, and those two other organizations on Instagram, as well as donation links, how you guys can learn more and help out if you feel called to do so. And I'll be sure to, um, to keep people posted when the, uh, best practices program is released and comes out. I'll, I'll be sure to point to that as well. Um, I do like to wrap up every conversation that I have on the podcast with a note of gratitude. And I, I would just love to ask you, Tyler, what else has been really good? It's, it's so cool to hear you talking about sport climbing and trying to find more joy and trying to make that more life-giving for yourself. Um, what else has been really good in your life? What else has been filling you up these days? What else is, um, have you been appreciating lately? Uh, that's easily my family. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about my kids, um, which are sources of joy and frustration, um, as well, (laughs) but, um, not as much uh, about my wife who's, you know, she works as a doctor, so she's working often 13 hour shifts and she does, um, she's working as a nocturnist at night. Um, she's an OBGYN, so she's, um, at the hospital at night delivering babies, um, and, uh, hopefully saving babies and saving moms, which has been extra tough during COVID. Mm. Um, and, uh, yet still, uh, you know, she makes sure that we can get out to the crag, um, and that, um, I get days of climbing in and, you know, so she's been, um, very supportive and, uh, you know, that's, that's so appreciated as well as just the the challenges of, you know, working 13 hours in a stressful hospital environment and then having, um, trying to be the best mom she can be when she's home with the kids and, the kids are going to daycare and soon preschool a couple of days a week. Um, but often those are happening on the days where she's sleep during the day because she works at night. So I get a couple hours, like when we're recording this to actually like hear my own thoughts and, um, be able to concentrate on something for more than two minutes at a time. Uh, <laughs> and she doesn't get those when she's not working and not sleeping. She's, she's, um, with me chasing the kids around. So, mm. um, that's, she's, she's working overtime, um, trying to do it all. And so Superhero. I'm grateful for her. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thanks for sharing that. Tyler, so good to, to have this conversation with you. I really enjoyed this. Um, thank you again for sharing all of your stories and, um, 
for sharing so much that we can all learn from from this conversation. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Once again, I'll link to everything uh, that we talked about in the show notes for this episode at thenuggetclimbing.com. Appreciate all of you guys. And thanks again. We'll see you next time. Like we do it.